you know, I actually started running after work instead of going to the bar when I got sober. And that's really how it began. I started training for my first half marathon after work. So I would literally get off of work, everyone else would go to the bar, um, and I would just go running through all the neighborhoods in Portland. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. What a cool thing to have Gregory Gorday on the show. Gregory is a chef and cookbook writer based in Portland, Oregon. And many of you may know Gregory from his memorable appearances on Top Chef, both as a contestant and judge. In this great conversation, we talk about his ambitious new restaurant in Portland, Khan. We also talk about his plans for bringing the spotlight onto Haitian cuisine, as well as living a happy, sober life. It was great having Gregory on the show, and I hope you enjoy it. Gregory Gorday, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. What a what an honor and a treat to be here. My goodness, I I can't wait to catch up with you. I love uh, I love everything you do, and we're going to talk about your cookbook, Everyone's Table, which won a James Beard Award. Shouts to that. I also want to talk about Portland, but man, the the top of the top of the the list is congrats. The New York Times just deemed uh, your new restaurant Con one of the country's fifty best. Uh, yeah, I mean, it feels super good. I know the team has been working extremely hard, and uh, it feels good that the food and the mission and the story, everything that we're trying to work towards uh, is reaching a broader audience. And uh, it feels good to have that recognition uh, because the team does work so hard. And uh, I'm just excited. It's just the beginning for us. And, you know, we're only six weeks old, so there's a lot more work to do. And uh, we're just gonna keep doing it. Absolutely, I I was I was lucky enough to be in the in the in the room the first week of service, and I want to I want to hear more about Khan and, and talk through some of my favorite dishes because I had some. But first, I'd like to get into Portland because the city of Portland, Oregon, to me is such a top tier restaurant city uh, between Korean and coffee and pizzas and bread and Southeast Asian food and one of the best Russian restaurants outside of Russia. What is the draw? What 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 is it about Portland? Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 very interesting, and I, I get this question quite often. And I'll yeah. meet like people around the country, and there'll be people of pretty big stature, and they're like, "Why are you in Portland, Oregon?" I get that question no. all the time. <laughs> like, uh, I remember I, I cooked for Oprah for, over the holidays, and that was the first thing she asked me was, "Why are you in Portland, Oregon?" Which is like pretty funny. But for me, you know, I actually went to college in Montana when I was much, much younger. And I would come to Portland and we would go to raves. So I actually have a much older history with Portland than uh, than most, I would say. Um, you know, it was, it was the 90s. I've been coming to Portland since the 90s. And I was fast forward many, many years, you know, culinary school. I become a chef. I've, I've cooked in New York City. And I was just at a, a very big turning point in my life. And I just was given job opportunities out West. And when I was, I moved to California briefly. And when I was presented with an opportunity to move to Oregon to work at my last job, uh, I did. But I had previously had a relationship with Oregon. So that being said, what's kept me here? Uh, I think it's a lot of things. You know, I think Portland is just, it's green. You know, that's that's a big draw for me. 
you know, coming as someone who's from New York City, uh, but who has always kind of lived half their life in kind of smaller towns and more rural natural areas, Oregon is perfect for me. It's the perfect mix of city, small city, uh, and access to the outdoors, which is extremely important to me. And I think the other piece is just as a chef, this is just a tremendous place to live and work because we have some of the best ingredients in the country. And, Absolutely, yeah. I agree with you. Just to be clear, I certainly wasn't on the Oprah tip. I was like, <laughs> w- like that that town it, it, it deserves you, but also you're you're one of many peers. Yeah. But I have a more important question. We're talking about raves. Is this like Big Beat, like Fat Boy Slim? Are we talking about Ronnie Size, like Jungle? Like let's talk nineties raves. It, it, it was. Uh, I mean, there was definitely some Jungle, but it was like Onions. There's it was it was it was early nineties. It was you know like just like scrappy little parties in train cars and like, uh, you know, just like little centers and just abandoned warehouses. Uh, you know, it yeah. was it was a moment. It was it was good. What a amazing scene do you have a pair of jenkos still because jenkos are coming back <laughs> they are back i i don't have jenkos but uh, i do uh, there's actually uh this brand called meals um yeah which, it's like the perfect combination of baggy 90s style pants but the company's called meals and they're all named after vegetables so it's like the perfect <laughs> chef outfit for me. <laughs> oh, sick. I love that. It's an open kitchen, too. So you're going to rock some of those for your service? <laughs> I, I don't, but that would be really funny. <laughs> I want to ask you, uh, speaking of, of fashion, so I, I'm in the dining room um, at Con, and I'm and I'm like, there are some fits here. Like, there's like prototype Nike. There's rare Nike. There's like really rare Japanese Nike. I mean, yeah. it's such a, a good looking dining room. Thanks so much. I mean, yeah, at any point. Point, you can spot who works in Nike, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I I mean, let's talk about like is Nike Nike is such a big part of Portland, but also like when it comes to like a cool restaurant that has a really strong point of view and you running it, you must have a lot of Nike clientele that comes through, does business, either with the athletes who are involved with Nike or just executives, right? Yeah, I mean I think what you know I've always wanted my wherever I work to be uh, a place where people can meet and you know we we do have you know these types of guests you know there are some kind of like super defining companies in the area that you know love to support smaller businesses Nike is one of them Adidas you know there there's tons of groups in town Um, and we work closely with our tourism board Travel Portland Travel Oregon to make sure that you know anyone who comes to town or anyone who is in town um, can have like a really great experience, whatever they choose to do in Oregon and Portland. Yeah, respect visiting Portland. I, I loved going there. I, I finally made to Ken Forkish's Bakery and Pizzeria One Two Punch. Love those spots. Um, let's go back to your career because uh, you have a really interesting career, and I wanted to get into kind of like your time at John George because you know you worked there for many years and. You know, it's famously a very intense place, but it's also famously a very creative place. So what was it like, uh, you know, having John George and that kind of infrastructure, you know, really kind of build your your career in terms of like your skills? Sure. I mean, for me, you know, honestly, like before I even went to culinary school, I didn't even know culinary school existed. You know, I was I was going to University of Montana. I was studying wildlife biology and I was washing dishes because I realized that I was interested in working in restaurants. And it was the chef there who was like, you should go to culinary school. And uh, so I, I enrolled in CIA. I talked to my parents, got into the CIA. And uh, I actually did my intern at Jean-Georges. So 
honestly, for me, you know, like at the most foundational level, um, you know, you know, modern French fine dining is, is really, you know, what I've done having, I started working there the day I, a week after graduating from, from CIA, I started working at Jean-Georges again. And, uh, you know, so it was extremely important, formative, and, and that kind of structure is really what formed me. But I stayed there because it was just so great, you know, and I believe that there was a system set up there to promote people. You know, Jean-Georges was expanding, you know, his, his restaurant, and he kind of really took a lot of chances on talent. And there was just room for opportunity. There was room for growth. I was able to come up with dishes. I was able to work with the colony director there. And uh, we he's still my mentor today, Greg Brainin. But, you know, I just kept my head down and kept working and I kept getting promoted and learning. Uh, it was just a really great place to be. I think I, I credit Jean-Georges with a lot of the things that I, I, I do today in terms of looking at food as health. Um, yeah. You know, because he was one of the proponents of, you know, just like lighting up French food and also seasonality. You know, there's a duality there because 12 months of the year, you can buy whatever you want. You know, there's caviar, there's truffles, there's asparagus, it's a signature dish. But every spring he would incessantly, you know, go to the farmer's market and everything just turned into farm fresh produce. And that was the right. first place I learned about seasonality. When you're working through the stations, I mean, tell me. What kind of tasks did you find really defined you as a chef? Were there are there any tasks that you mastered while there? Because I mean, it's famously the Comis uh, setup there is extremely rigid and rigorous. I mean, did, how did this John George experience like really inform you as a chef? I, I think for me, you know, I think even on ever since my, even being an intern there, I was given so much responsibility and it really seemed like everyone working there just really understood that sense of responsibility. And we all knew that we had a very important job to do. And it was up to us to make sure that our stations were set up on time. We had all the leads in place that we had, you know, we all yep. would come in early just to make sure we were super set up. There was, we were given a lot of responsibility, you know, like as an intern, I was, you know, already working a station, you know? Um, so, I think with that, you know, it just made me a, a much, much better cook because I just knew what I had to do. And it was, yeah. there was an expectation. Um, and I believe that there's a support system. There are recipes, there are diagrams. Um, we had partners, we had an AM team, the, you know, the, the sous chefs worked with us, the chefs worked with us. So um, overall, I thought it was a, a very good system. Yeah, it, absolutely. It's really a foundation there. I have to ask you, I, I had J.J. Johnson on in uh, episode 137, and we talked a lot about um, his experience at the CIA being a black chef, and this was in the late 90s, so I think you were there a little earlier. You know, what was that like for you being a black chef in at the CIA at that time? I mean, was it, were you one of few black chefs there, like J.J.'s experience, or was it maybe different? Uh, I graduated from CIA in 2000, so I caught the tail end of the 90s. But I had already been to college in Montana, uh, where I was much more of a minority. Um, yeah. But, you know, I mean, CIA, again, for me, CIA was really the first time that I felt that I was doing something I felt passionate about. You know, I'd gone through many different majors. Um, I'd done pre-med at NYU, didn't 
feel that, moved out to Montana, mm-hmm. studied wildlife biology for a couple of years. Uh, finally, you know, took up some French and just get out of there. So I go to CIA. But for me, it was a different experience in the sense that I finally found what I loved and it just clicked. And I was just honestly just really, really happy to be there. Um, and I actually made some really good friends with a bunch of friends, a bunch of colleagues and classmates from New York, um, from Queens. You know, I met one of my best friends, Peter. He was also from Queens and we were roommates. And uh, it was just a very positive experience overall because I was finally doing what I loved. Happy to hear that. I thank you for sharing your experience. I mean, I I, I just wanted to, to get this sense of how the CAA works. I think especially in that era, you know, it's it still is important today, but especially that era, it really was training the best chefs in the world. Um, and it's cool to hear that you formed friendships that you still have and and that it was a good experience. I mean, do you think culinary school is is uh, is like the is an important track right now for, for professionals? Oh, Are you hiring culinary school grads? I, yeah, I don't I don't honestly like I don't necessarily think you have to go to culinary school at all. You know, I think you can easily get the skills just by learning in the real world. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I would say I'm 50 50 on culinary school like. It's, it's one way to kind of fast track and learn kind of like the fundamentals. And, you know, to be honest, you learn a lot of European cooking technique, which is helpful just to be well-rounded. But, um, you know, I do not think you need to go to culinary school. You can literally work in a restaurant and just work your way up, you know. Word. I, 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 that's good. That's interesting information. I, I, I feel it's that's pragmatic advice. I think it's there's no... There's no obviously right or wrong with that answer. Um, I want to hear about your um, your new restaurant because you really gained a claim, and this probably comes from your John George days, but also just your when you were working um, at your previous restaurant in Portland. You were melding classic Asian flavors into I'm not call it fusion, but into into dishes that felt like they were maybe non traditional. And with Khan, you've taken kind of a right turn towards Haitian cuisine, which is really delicious food, and and we'll talk about some of the dishes. But it does how is this direction the right direction for you right now? Yeah, I mean, I think for me it was you know finally taking the jump and opening my own restaurant, and for me having worked in other people's restaurants for my entire career and having worked in many concepts, you know, restaurants that are a yeah. concept before anything else. Um, this restaurant just had to be a very personal project, you know, and, and it had to start with, with me and, uh, it felt the most wholesome and the most honest for it to be a Haitian restaurant where I could cook Haitian food, you know, cook the food of my ancestors. Um, there's also a huge element of, of me in there as well, in terms of me being like, uh, a local seasonal farm to table chef and, uh, and all the kind of things that I personally wanted the restaurant to represent. So, you know, I I didn't start cooking until I was a little bit older in life, like we've discussed. And, you know, just like I learned how to make French food, you know, and Spanish food and, you know, Pan-Asian flavor cuisine. Uh, I learned how to make Haitian food, you know, and it, it was about, I would say, six, seven years ago that, you know, I decided to go on this, to, to, to take on this path and, the first thing I did was start work with my mother and we went over all the family recipes and, you know, I would go visit her over Thanksgiving or Christmas and we would cook together. And, and once I got all those recipes down, we just, we cooked together around the country. And I knew that cooking these dishes, it just felt far more natural to me because I could 
cook based off memory and emotion um, as opposed to something that I'd learn. Absolutely. I mean, that's a great story. And, and it's cool that you were able to collaborate with your mama on some of these recipes. Diri is red beans and rice and, and absolutely deli- most delicious red beans and rice I've ever had in my oh, life. Wow, that's Just, amazing. <laughs> no, for real, man. It was it was it was like changed my, my perception. And I, I love Popeyes personally. I really love Popeyes red beans and rice. I, I just love it, but <laughs> sorry, that's an aside. Um, <laughs> but I, I mean, let's talk about taking these two ingredients, beans and rice. How do you take them and heat? How do you take that to like the higher plane? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, you know, just exploring the menu at Khan, you know, the menu at Khan, you know, I wanted people who walk into that restaurant to experience some traditional Haitian flavors and some traditional Haitian dishes. I would say, I would say maybe like one third to half of the menu is based off traditional Haitian food. And the rest of the menu is inspired by Haitian flavors, pan-Caribbean flavors, West African flavors, uh, and local seasonality. Um, but those, that's one of those dishes where, you know, I kept it as traditional as possible. And, you know, I think for me, just having, you know, the, the knowledge of a technical chef and just trying to make things as perfect as possible technically and uh, as delicious as possible. You know, I love fully flavored, you know, delicious food. You know, I, I like to season all the components of a dish instead of trusting it to work together. Um, So if you break apart any type of any of my food, you know, each piece is ready to go. So, you know, with that dish, you know, I mean, it's the, the rice is weighed out by gram, you know, uh, it's seasoned with olive oil and salt. Uh, the beans, they get simmered with onions, garlic, a little bit of clove, some habanero and some scallions, uh, and then half gets pureed. And then we add another layer of onions and garlic um, and, and scallions um, and salt and olive oil. And, and that's really all the ingredients, but it's just being able to layer those flavors um, and being technically accurate in how we cook those two items sounds cool. So you're 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 blending half of the 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 beans and you're making that and you're reincorporating it yeah, into the yeah. the beans. Yeah, so it's so it has like a saucy consistency because you're supposed to pour the sauce quoi, um, which means bean sauce, over the rice. Um, so you want it to be juicy and loose and and, and mm-hmm. cover coat the rice properly, but still have some texture from the beans, some soft texture. We'll order that, guys, listeners. Order that one. That's, that's a good that's, one. That's a, that, good one. That's a favorite. Yeah. I also like the 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 berry and cherry salad. So yes. I'm I'm curious as a home cook, and I, I spotted this recipe in everyone's table or, or a version of it where it's like cherry tomatoes and seasonal berries. Now, that's tough for some audiences. Like, that's a tough combination because it's like they're kind of polar opposites to some, even though they both are fruits. How do you make that work? Because I loved the way it worked in the restaurant. I loved it. I wanted to do it at home. Yeah, and I think this one, this is like the opposite end of the spectrum of the menu. And and that is, that dish is an homage to Oregon. And I love that you had it. And anyone who comes to visit us from out of town, you know, I always serve them that dish if they haven't ordered it, if I, if mm-hmm. I see their order. But, you know, just to honor the amazing tomatoes that, you know, my friend farmers are growing, um, we pickled a bunch of cherries midsummer because cherry season comes and goes pretty quickly. Uh, and then just, I mean, berries, berries are ridiculous here. Strawberries, blueberries, blackberries, marion berries, golden raspberries. Like they're still booming at the farmer's market. They're as sweet as ever. And uh, I love those ingredients and, and I love that they're from here. 
Uh, and mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's just a play of, of sweet and tart. Uh, we tempered that with a little bit of habanero oil and salad. Um, we enrich it with a little bit of coconut cream, um, which is also yes. part of the salad. Uh, and then the dressing is coconut milk and coconut vinegar um, with habanero, thyme, and garlic. So it's like this crazy play of sweet and naturally sweet, but there's tons of acid. Uh, there's tons of fat. Um, and, and tons of herbs. So it's it's really a dynamic salad. I really appreciate that you liked it. It's dope. I mean, so to, re- to refresh, it's cherry tomatoes, fermented cherries or pickled cherries, fresh berries, and lots of herbs with, with a habanero oil. Love that. Delicious food. Just absolutely cool, man. <laughs> Let me ask you, the restaurant is mostly dairy-free and mostly gluten-free. And, you know, you're not like, at least from my vision, you haven't been open that long, but you're not like trying to promote it as that, but it still is that. Now, that's interesting to me because usually when you restrict these elements from a restaurant, you're going to put that as like your headline, but it's not quite there. So is this just the modern way that many are eating right now? Yeah, so I'm actually um, dairy-free and gluten-free and as is the restaurant. The restaurant is actually entirely gluten-free and dairy-free. And Got it. as someone with like, dietary distinctions and i know as a chef that i can walk into a restaurant and look at the menu and kind of figure out like what i can eat and like what's going to be easy for the kitchen to modify without being too much of a pain in the butt but portland also has a lot of guests with dietary distinctions so i just want to be a place where people of all dietary distinctions can come in and eat and you know to have someone who has celiac come in and be able to have patties and buns and just eat the entire menu and and order every single dessert if they want. That's something that does not happen at all ever, no. you know. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, it, it feels good to be able to offer that. You know, we're actually super aware, super on any type type of dietary distinction. You can literally throw anything at us, and we will provide you with something. Um, I think that's extremely important because as someone with a, with dietary distinctions, I know how challenging it can be. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think there's a way to do it and not have it be this thing. And I think that's yeah. part of me as well. That's what's reflected in my cookbook. It's being able to cook all this food that is just happens to be free of dairy or gluten um, or possibly refined sugar. Um, but you're not thinking about that as you eat it because the textures are great. It's, it's focused on all these other things that are amazing as well. Um, and that way everyone at the table can enjoy it because if you have a party of six and one person has celiac or one person is dairy free, all six people can have a great time at con. No doubt. And I love the word dietary distinction or the term dietary distinction. I feel like that's not used enough. We use restriction and we, we kind of make it weird, right? It becomes Mm -hmm. an odd Mm -hmm. moment for the diner and you're, you're kind of dicking the opposite there. Your cookbook with Harper Wave, we share a publisher. Shout out to Julie Will and the team there. Um, I must say, uh, you know, it blends your old cooking life, right, before you've changed your diet and your lifestyle a little bit with your new cooking life. And how do you how do you do that in a cookbook? Because there's just a lot. It feels like you're not, like, restricting anything in, in the recipes. They're very... They seem very... They could have been at Jean George, right? They could have been in this older you, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. they're modern you. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, again, the book, you know, being my first cookbook, again, it it really was a very personal project. But at the same time, I really wanted to create a book that helped people. Um, and it was, while it was a very personal project, 
I want the book to be less about me and more about just having all these awesome recipes that people of any dietary distinction could enjoy and, and cook out of and learn a few culinary tips. So, so yeah, a lot of those recipes, you know, are recipes that I've been making for most of my career, you know, um, and I just kind of try to simplify them as much as possible for home cooks. Um, and the other half is, is things that, you know, I came up with just in the sake of rounding out chapters and making sure there's enough accessible recipes featuring things we eat all the time, like salmon and chicken and carrots, um, all these year round accessible ingredients. Um, and those are highly featured in the book. Yeah, it's 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 a great cookbook. Highly recommend it. So you talk openly about your addiction to drugs and alcohol and how your long road to recovery ultimately uh, got you to a place where long distance running um, became a, a big part of your lifestyle. And and let's just talk about that because you know running is something I also hold dearly to myself, and I, I consider it part of my my own practice for you know my mental and physical stability. But talk about running. How does running play into your life? So I got sober uh, in 2009. And after someone who was so addicted to nightlife and staying up, you know, it really (laughs) started in New York City, uh, which is, you know, not it's it's really a terrible place to to have an addiction because nothing closes (laughs) in New York City. No, especially, you know, during the, the at the end of the aughts. So. Uh, uh, so, you know, I actually started running after work instead of going to the bar when I got sober and that's really how it began. And I would, I started training for my first half marathon after work. So I would literally get off of work. Everyone else would go to the bar. Um, and I would just go running through all the neighborhoods in Portland. Training for a half marathon led to me training for my first marathon, uh, training for my first marathon, you know, kind of took me down the rabbit hole of Google and running. And I, one day I just saw the word ultra marathon and oh. ultra or ultra runner. And it just sounded so badass. And I was like, what's an ultra runner. And <laughs> it's just, you just have to run, you know, 31 miles. And that's the, the basic ultra distance. And uh, I was like, well, that's only, you know, like five miles longer than a marathon. I can do that. So, so, um, so that led into long distance running, but I mean, I think, being able to compartmentalize mileage in a run, it's like really just like this very clear symbolic metaphor for life. And, mm-hmm. you know, going mile by mile to get to your goal, you know, there's always a halfway point where you get to turn around and come home, you know, being a long distance trail runner um, in the natural surroundings that we have here in Oregon, you know, I was literally, you know, able to climb mountains because we're surrounded by mountains. So there's just like a very clear metaphor through all of that. And, and, in early sobriety, it really helped me just get a hold on my life um, and just focus on something that helped me accomplish things in other areas of life. It's very interesting about the trails because to me, that's like truly you're like in the weeds, you know, not to use a weird <laughs> metaphor that you use in the kitchen, but <laughs> you're like conquering the weeds. But I, I, I feel like, the, you know, having spent some time in Oregon, it's it's got to be really unique to be able to go out there and run like 25 plus miles, whatever you do. But I mean, how do you uh, make time when you're working so much to run? I mean, you must yeah. make time. No, I'll be very honest. I've only run two miles since we opened the restaurant. <laughs> so, well, okay. yeah, I'll be very <laughs> honest. Um, no, I'm actually recovering from meniscus surgery that I had in January oh, okay. and rehab and, you know, recovery has been spotty 
but uh, you know, I've gotten back up to about nine miles um, mm. and then we opened the restaurant. So I'm refocused on making that commitment. You know, I think uh, yeah. my, my good friend Oprah said that you can't have everything all the time. So uh, <laughs> focusing on opening the restaurant and, and getting us through this and then uh, keeping my health important, but it's not as um, I don't have all the time to do all the things that I want to right now. But no, you can't. Focus on you got to take one step at a time. What are you listening to while you're running? Are you are you a podcast? Are you music? What are you, um, what are you doing? Honestly, uh, I honestly like if I'm doing a short run, uh, like in, in the city, I, I listen to like house music or techno just to keep me going. Um, my friend Will Clark's a, a British DJ. He's really great. He has a like, really fun music that's really like mm-hmm. pump it up. Uh, but honestly, running for me where I was so kind of consumed with how far I could go and how fast I'd go when I was both a marathoner and like a long distance trail runner. Now it's really about just being alone or with a friend quietly running through the woods and just trying to be outside for as long as possible. So it's much less about how fast or how far I can go these days. And it's just about how much time can I spend outside? And it's really about just not having music and having all my senses and Mm-hmm. You know, just smelling the, the pine and, you know, listening to the birds and and just being out there. Just sounds lovely. It sounds amazing. <laughs> I want to ask you a serious question. You know, our listeners, you know, maybe there's somebody's listening who might be struggling with addiction or, or maybe be on the cusp of struggling with addiction. I'm sorry, acknowledging their addiction. Now, if somebody came to you and said, like, I think I'm I'm having some issues what would you tell like a, a coworker or a friend if, if they're if they're posing this question to you that if it may be drugs or alcohol or whatever? What what's what's a um what's a what's a response, Gregory, that you would have for them? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is that it's really hard to help other people unless they're ready to help themselves. And you can't force anyone to get sober, you can't force anyone into recovery. Like it's, it's, it's really, really like a deep, deep, deep look into yourself and where you're at with yourself. So I would, I would ask that person if they thought drugs or alcohol was making, you know, causing a problem in their life. Um, is, is your life unmanageable with drugs and alcohol? Um, and are you ready to stop? Those are the two big questions. You know, the first one is, is your life unmanageable? And, and number two is, are you ready to stop? And if the answer is yes for both of those, then I think that's when, you know, heading on to the path of recovery um, gets a little bit easier because you have that self-awareness, you're ready, um, you're ready to give up and give in and try something different. Thank you for sharing that. I, I was just, I, I just wanted to ask you that because I'm hearing about this trail running and, and listening to the birds and like, that sounds really nice. And I think some folks maybe haven't been able to get to that part of their life where they can actually go and enjoy the birds and enjoy nature and feel like they have that kind of serenity, so to speak. Um, did you, for your own recovery, did you go through any of the of the more traditional steps or did you do it on your own? Yeah, so I actually, when I left New York, I was in rehab and I left rehab to go work in California because I got a job offer um, via some friends who I'd worked with in New York City. Uh, at John George with. Uh, so honestly, from the time I left rehab to the time I got sober, it was a full two years of just <laughs> car accidents, DUIs, getting arrested, uh, you know, mm. relapsing, uh, 
getting fired from jobs. It was, it was a really, really bad two years, but it was like the final two years. And when I just started looking around and, you know, seeing my friends being responsible and having kids and buying houses. And, you know, I was still kind of like just doing the same thing over and over again in this repetitive cycle. And uh, what had happened for me is I actually met people who are in, in recovery and I met a group of chefs who were in recovery. And it was the first time that I saw that there could be a different way that you could hang out, mm-hmm. you could work um, and you didn't have to drink. And um, after going back and forth for a few more months, you know, I really truly asked myself if I thought I was done drinking and doing drugs for the rest of my life. And I looked in the mirror and I told myself the answer was yes. Um, and at that point, you know, I just, I asked one of my friends to take me to an AA meeting. Um, and that was like 13 and a half years ago. And um, my life has been absolutely amazing ever since. Amazing. Well, thanks for sharing that. I, I and, and I'm sure um, this is very helpful for our listeners who may be um, struggling out there. So thanks for that. I didn't ask you about Top Chef. We're like 30 minutes in or 25 <laughs> minutes. So I, uh, I mean, I, intentionally, to be honest, because I, I feel like that's a cool thing to do, but you're, you're, you know, you got other things in your life, but are you, what's, what is the top chef update? Are you back on the show? Uh, for future seasons? Uh, no, I'm no, I'm not back on the show. I'm, uh, I'm very busy with my restaurant. Yeah. Um, I would, I, I love top chef. I it's, it's very clear that a lot of people love top chef because I would say yeah. 50% of our client base is top chef fans, um, which is extremely interesting. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> You know, Top Chef has been a, a tremendous thing for my career. It's been a, a tremendous thing for just my personal life in terms of, uh, you know, dealing with criticism and, and pushing and, and wanting to excel and, and being able to work under pressure. You know, all these things that we experience in Top Chef are really applicable to life. And I think that's not something that people realize. But um, as a contestant on the show, um, what they put us through is really, really um, a good kind of game plan and little roadmap for life. Um, so we, you walk away from the show kind of realizing that, A, there's so much about food you don't know, so you, you leave hungry to learn more. Um, and you just, you know, you learn how to deal with pressure um, really quickly on that show. Yeah, you can't sandbag it all, and if there's no real smoke and mirrors. You got you to gotta have the goods to, to, to compete in that show. And, I mean, I'm sitting in your dining room. I'm at the counter. It's an open kitchen you got your whole staff there, and, like, there are f- cameras out <laughs> at Con. The cameras are out. How does that feel? Like, you've got this open kitchen. You're a celebrity chef. What's that feel like? Uh, I don't know. I just don't consider myself a celebrity. I just think of myself, honestly, as, like, a very introverted, <laughs> quiet mm. person um, who happens to be in the public light. But, uh, honestly, uh, I know having an open kitchen we invited this but you know i'm definitely underwatched all the time like i'm completely being watched the entire time i know do you regret it now that you oh, have i don't, people in I don't regret it at all you know i mean i i don't believe there there should be walls between um the kitchen and the rest of the restaurant you know i i we designed that restaurant specifically to have us feel that we're all in this dining experience all together and uh you know i think people enjoy seeing what happens in the kitchen um, and there's nothing to hide, you know, and I think we're all in this great culinary experience together. And that's one of the best parts of having an open kitchen. 
listen, I love it. I, I wasn't trying to snark at all. I'm no, like, no, no, I, no. I see pure pure joy from some of the. Uh, I was seeing a dozen people take photos and selfies and, and sneaky <laughs> photos and every angle of your back cover. Every, I mean, it's really funny. <laughs> I mean, people take food so seriously. It's 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 sport at this point. You know, there's yeah, there's you know, they're they're betting on us in Vegas. You know, there's like uh, people are. <laughs> are going to top chef restaurants and keeping scorecards and, you know, it's like bucket list stuff, uh, you know, but I, I, I think it's very interesting what, what foodie culture has become. And um, I'm just excited that they keep our restaurants busy and they come and, you know, they love to eat at, you know, all our restaurants and I'm talking about me and all my colleagues. And mm -hmm. um, I, I appreciate that food culture has become so important that it has such crazy diehard fans that want to support restaurants around the country and around the world. I love that. Do you have a couple favorite Portland restaurants you want to shout out? I just like I gotta I gotta say that because it's such a fun city to visit for food. Oh, it really amazing. is like one of the best food yeah, cities absolutely. in the country. Uh, I love Fermenter, which is a vegan restaurant, and uh, they do such fantastic work with fermentation from like koji beets to kombucha. Uh, they make their own tempeh. It's just a really, really great place uh, to eat like delicious health focused food that has a lot of technique behind it. Um, I love the wings at Toki, uh, mm -hmm. Peter Cho and Sun Cho, their restaurant, their sister restaurant, Tahan Oak. Um, I think it's the best, the best fried chicken in Portland. Uh, I love Padi a lot, which is a Thai restaurant. Uh, Akadi is a West African restaurant and Fatou and George do a tremendous job with the food there. Uh, I mean, the list goes on. There's so many great places in Portland. It's, I love, I love, uh, Hanok and I, Toki was, was, was really solid. I, I got to shut up my own because I just had this like amazing time just like recently there. I loved, I love their Perlita. I love the coffee there. Mm -hmm. I think that they're doing awesome Mexican American coffees, which is kind of a rare, a rare thing to see in the country. Um, gotta shout out Ripe Cooperative. Oh yeah, absolutely. Love Naomi. Oh yeah, I mean Naomi's just one of the best. I, I love how talk about technique. You know, everything there is just executed so perfectly well. Just delicious food and, and cool, cool format there. It's it's feeling like kind of like casual but also serious. It's like a blending of the two vibes. And my last one: Have you been to Cameo Cafe? No, I haven't actually. That's kind of near up near the airport. It's a Korean-owned diner, and they. I was researching for Korea World, the book I'm working on with Dookie Hong, and I was up there talking to her, and it's such a cool old like 1970s diner, and they have random Korean dishes on it. Oh wow! Uh, like beaten duck, the, uh, the the soybean ground soybean pancake with eggs and bacon. Loved it so much. What's it called? Cameo Cafe. All right, all right. I'm looking it up. Yeah, it's 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 really really good. So, shout out to Portland and thank you for joining. I want to ask you one last question. We asked all guests on the Taste Podcast if there was a dream food or cookbook where you that you could work on that without the burden of time, meaning you have unlimited deadline, uh, without or without the burden of budget, meaning you have you know unlimited money to spend on it. You don't have a budget. What would that What would that cookbook be? So I have a plan and. One of the cookbooks I would like to write uh, is a Haiti cookbook, and it really would be traditional leaning in, uh, in terms of diving specifically into the history of Haiti uh, from the indigenous folks to current day 
um, how all these great iconic Haitian dishes came to be uh, with also, you know, the indigenous Caribbean ingredients, uh, the ingredients that were brought over from West Africa um, and just region by region, um, the region defining the cuisine of Haiti as well. That's something that's in the back of my head. That's I'm very slowly working on. It's probably like like a seven year plan, maybe like a five yeah. year plan at this point. Well, why? Yeah, I love this, and I I, I assumed you would want to maybe take some of your, your the recipes you work with your mom and some of the research that you're talking about, and uh, turning into a book. But like, why why rush it, right? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, you know, to do that book, the honor it deserves. Uh, you know, I just want to be able to to travel to Haiti like multiple times. Um, I want to be able to you know go into you know, different areas uh, and just speak with a lot of people and work with home cooks and just really take my time and, and like really make a beautiful, honest, important book. Um, and I, I that's definitely not something that I would ever rush. Gregory Gorday, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.